During my training in psychiatry, one of the aspects that appealed to me about working with older adults specifically was that in many cases, rather than seeing a single patient, I was often working with couples, or the patient plus their adult child, or the patient plus a spouse, plus several children. It wasn't unusual to run out of chairs in the exam room. For a person living with dementia, these family members really become critical members of the care team. You'll hopefully recall from earlier episodes that, in the simplest terms, dementia is a decline in cognition that also causes a decline in function, or the ability to address tasks of daily living. So a person living with dementia may initially need help getting through more complicated day-to-day tasks, like taking medications or paying bills, but as the dementia progresses, they will need help with more basic tasks, like getting dressed or bathing. The caregiver often becomes the primary point of contact with the healthcare system. It would not be hyperbole to say that a diagnosis of dementia is life-changing for both the person with dementia, but also their caregiver. Physicians interact with individuals living with dementia on a routine basis. Among researchers, though, who may not know someone who has the condition, the degree to which it impacts the lives of family members and close friends is easy to underestimate. It's fair to say that dementia is unique in both the nature of help required as well as simply the amount of help needed. In this episode, we're going to take a step back from research and our discussions regarding treatment and policy and talk about what life is like for a caregiver. I'm Matt Davis. I'm Donovan Most. You're listening to Minding Memory. Our guest today is Dr. Amanda Leggett. Dr. Leggett is a research assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry here at the University of Michigan. She completed her PhD at Penn State with Dr. Steven Zaret, who is a pioneer in dementia caregiving research, and she joined faculty at the University of Michigan in 2017. Her research, funded by the National Institutes of Health, is focused on issues related to dementia caregiving. She's interviewed over 100 caregivers of persons living with dementia. In addition, Dr. Leggett has hands-on caregiving experience as a longtime hospice volunteer. She's here today to speak with us about caregiving and in a later segment, will introduce us to a caregiver that she's gotten to know. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. First, I was wondering if we could get started. Could you just tell us how you got involved in studying dementia caregiving? Yeah. So actually, when I was in high school, my first quote-unquote real job that I had was working as a waitress in an assisted living facility. And it was one of those jobs where People generally stayed for two months and then left because they realized they could make more money at Chili's. You could get tips at Chili's. Uh, But I actually loved that job so much. I found that I really loved the residents and their stories and interacting with them. I think it also really opened my eyes a lot to the cognitive and psychological challenges that exist among residents often in these facilities. So it really kind of piqued my interest in gerontology to begin with. So when I went to college, I was specifically interested in understanding you know, adult development and aging and, and thinking about some of these psychological um, issues that I really witnessed in this job because my grandparents all passed away when I was quite young. I didn't really have um, a much relationship with them. And so this was my first exposure, so to speak. So um, as I said, I went to, to college interested in adult development and aging. And I, I guess I also realized through this job, I, I was rare in that I had that interest in, in some sense that so many of my coworkers really hated the job and were ready to get out of there. And I just absolutely loved it. 
But I also did a lot of babysitting. I did a lot of work with my church's youth group. So I was really interested in all age groups. And so I think I got um, I, I think I got interested in being able to think about aging on this developmental trajectory because all older adults were once children, once adolescents, once adults, right? So how does the whole lifespan inform who these individuals become? And so when I went to grad school, I chose a developmental psychology PhD program that could help me think about aging through that lens of the full lifespan. And as Donovan introduced, I was fortunate to be in the lab working with Dr. Steven Zaret, who is a pioneer in the area of family care. So I actually went into his lab with interest in intergenerational relationships. So some of the work I had done in college was really exploring relationships between older adults and grandchildren and adult children. And Steve had some studies kind of in that area. But then the more I got into the lab and talking with him and, and thinking about the research he was involved in, I realized, wow, like actually dementia caregiving was a way for me to bring all of my areas of interest uh, kind of aligning into one area because I was interested in psychological well-being, cognitive health, but then I was also interested in intergenerational relationships, which is something you really see in family caregiving because often it's a spouse, but often it's an adult child, grandchildren may be involved, daughters-in-law, sons-in-law. It really brings the whole family into the picture in terms of working with uh, someone who's diagnosed with dementia. So I think that that's how I landed there was from this interest in older adults more broadly and also the full lifespan. And then it, it psychological health, cognitive health, and all of these areas really align within dementia caregiving. And it all started as a waitress in assisted living. That's, yeah. that's an amazing trajectory. Minimum wage job, no tips, you know, <laughs> but it was yeah. great. I, I absolutely loved it. I'm grateful to have started there. I probably wouldn't have found this love and this passion. So thinking about caregiving, caregiving isn't you know just unique to people living with dementia. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of chronic conditions that people talk about with caregiving. So how would you say you know caregiving for a person with dementia is different than any other chronic condition? Right. Well, dementia itself is different in many ways in that it's progressive. Um, and as of now, there is no cure. So in contrast with some other chronic conditions, even conditions that may be long lasting, sometimes there are treatments that can work or that can cure the condition. Um, and we don't see that with dementia. We see, you know, good days, but generally speaking, it's progressive and things are um, getting worse over time. I think something else that's unique to dementia specifically is that we see areas of impairment across multiple domains. So people tend to think of dementia as a cognitive uh, disease. So Alzheimer's disease, they think, oh, well, that's memory loss, which is true. We see cognitive deficits like memory loss um, with dementia, but we also see physical and functional declines and also behavioral and psychological impairments can come along with a dementia diagnosis. So all of these things together over time can really change the autonomy of the individual. And that is quite different or distinct from some other chronic conditions, such as, say, heart disease, or cancer. And with dementia caregivers, we see a really strong emotional aspect here. So just comparing dementia caregivers versus other types of caregivers for chronic conditions, we tend to see higher levels of stress, higher levels of depressive and anxiety symptoms as well. So imagine you know, having a relationship with a spouse or with a parent who starts to forget shared experiences that may be really meaningful in your life, or ultimately over time may not even remember who you are and how you're related to them. 
So emotionally, that can be very challenging in contrast with other chronic conditions is, you know, if you're a child and your parent has always been caring for you throughout your life, and now those roles start to reverse and you're providing care for your parent who um, may have changed dramatically, this can take a great emotional toll. Or even with some forms of dementia, such as frontotemporal, uh, you might see personality changes. And so maybe your mother, who was always very mild-mannered, um, her personality changes and she becomes much more abrasive with the disease. And so some of these changes are quite distinct. Um, and then I think an, a final thing I would emphasize here is it as this autonomy declines and as these levels of impairment start to increase over time, it's uh, people talk about the 24-hour nature. In fact, I think one of the most popular um, long-lasting books in dementia caregiving is called The 36-Hour Day which gets at this idea that all that a caregiver does is really more than a 24-hour day. It's a 36-hour day of, you know, having to help um, monitor um, or, you know, deal with safety concerns, for example, of, of an individual with dementia. So stemming from the dementia itself, there are distinct challenges from what we see with other chronic conditions. And all of these things kind of align together to make a more challenging picture for dementia caregivers. I, I really can't imagine, you, you, you know, thinking about just, I mean, I, I guess it, I'm sure it varies a lot in terms of the memory loss and the loss of shared past experiences, but, you know, to not have that over time, it must be very difficult when you're putting in so many hours and doing so many things to lose that attribute. I, I can't really imagine. It must be terrible. Yeah. I recently saw in the news, actually, a story of um, a woman who, whose husband had early um, onset dementia and, you know, he couldn't really remember um, consistently that, that they were married. And one day he, he said to his wife, you know, we should, we should get married. Like, <laughs> we should make this a real thing. And so they did. They had, like, a, another wedding and another celebration that would be more recent and more present um, in, in their memories and something special that, that she, the wife caregiver, could kind of hold on to. And moving forward, I thought that was a really beautiful story. But it also captures... Right, some of the heartbreak of you know potentially your husband not even remembering um, that you are in fact married. I saw the same story, and I remember she she was sort of talking about the little things that she mm -hmm. could tell that he could remember and things, and that was kind of worth it for her to kind of keep her keep her going and motivate her. Mm -hmm. Exactly, Amanda. In an earlier answer, you alluded to the relationships of caregivers. So who who are the who's who's the most common caregiver what types of relationships what what sorts of folks can can be caregivers mm -hmm, exactly so i think in the research um perspective we tend to think a lot about a primary caregiver there's often an individual who's doing um, predominantly the largest amount of care but in reality these individuals are situated within larger um, family and social networks that may be assisting with care but if we're thinking kind of of a primary caregiver, someone who's who's doing the most assistance in terms of care, often this is a spouse or an adult child. Um, in most instances, those are the most common, and particularly in terms of adult children, daughters are, are most commonly providing care. But other relatives like sons or daughters-in-law, other friends, niece or nephews, we're seeing more and more grandchildren taking on significant roles in family care. Um, so we really see the the full um, family network kind of interacting and and coming together in terms of uh, supporting an individual with dementia. Sometimes this is quite complex. Um, you know, often in the United States, families 
disperse and they're not all located in one geographic region. And so sometimes the decision is made by proximity by proximity, um, but this can be complicated when one sibling, you know, may be in California, the other's in Michigan. And so the one that's in Michigan is seeing the day-to-day and, and what's going on. And the one in California is just having occasional, you know, phone conversations and they might have a different picture of, of the situation, which can can be challenging. But I would say most commonly we're seeing family members. Um, sometimes we'll see like friends or neighbors as well. I started wondering about what happens when you don't have a logical, if you don't have a spouse mm-hmm. or a child, you know, what happens? Yeah. Yeah. So I think this varies a lot depending on the situation. So um, oftentimes we'll see close friends or neighbors, um, even church members step into this role. So, you know, you mentioned I, I've done some hospice work and I remember a former patient I worked with um, kind of the, the, the man who was kind of the primary caregiver for, for this um, woman who had dementia was a, a close friend from a church community because she didn't have any children and her husband um, had had passed. And so, you know, we can see other members of the social network step into this role. I think often these are also instances where formal care can come into play, um, whether that be like a hired aide or nurse that might come in um, to help, or, or sometimes these individuals might, um, you know, go into a long-term care facility, which might be a good fit for them. Uh, However, I do think it's also true that some individuals may be living independently in the community because they don't have a natural care in in place. And and maybe sometimes those individuals are in need of supportive services, um, but they're they're falling a little bit below the radar um, in that sense, just based on their independent living and maybe others in their network not really knowing what's going on. So I do do think that's possible too. But um, often people in the broader social network will kind of in, whether it be a neighbor or um, other friend. So I want to go back a couple minutes. We're covering so much good ground. Um, you made a comment about sometimes uh, proximity can be an important factor. So there might be a, uh, the kid who lives closer and another child who lives in California. Mm-hmm. I think clinically what can be really interesting is, you know, you if you have a family, oftentimes there can be sort of complex family dynamics and those don't go away when the person develops dementia. So if there was tension between siblings before mom or dad got sick, there still will be tension and maybe it will even be exacerbated because of the decisions that need to get made. Mm -hmm. Another thing that can be complicated is, um, say the parent who's developed dementia maybe wasn't the nicest parent when they were younger and now they're old and they need care from children who maybe don't have the greatest memories of mom or dad from when they were young. So, you know, those are hard things. Uh, you know, you, you can't fan, find that kind of information in like Medicare claims data or the health and retirement study. But when you're actually in the room with these families, those types of relationships, you know, that have um, been building over decades can be really very important in the way that, that you um, try to help help these families and sort of navigate some some of the challenges there in the caregiving relationship. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. As you say, family dynamics can be complicated from the start and dementia is not a cure for, for that. Often it'll amplify some of these difficulties. And so oftentimes I hear this from my caregivers is great frustration with wanting to make a decision and wanting to do something, but 
you know, uh, you know, other family members are not in agreement. I, I often see it more commonly now, too, that it might be a second marriage for some of these partners. And so not only are they dealing with their own children, they're dealing with their new spouses, children that are their stepchildren, right? And so, you know, family dynamics can be quite complicated when um, different members have have different perspectives. So one thing I always tell my caregivers that I think is a great resource that's maybe not highlighted enough is that social workers are particularly trained to do what we call like a family meeting, which is a really helpful way of getting everyone who has a stake or is involved in the room, including the um, individual living with dementia, to kind of express all perspectives, make sure all voices are heard, but have that external facilitator of a social worker to kind of work with the family together and to be able to say objectively, like, here's what here's what we're seeing with um, this individual and here's some of the decisions that need to be made and kind of have some external guidance and talking through some of these things because it can be very difficult to do. So people throw around a lot of terms when it comes to caregiving. People talk about formal versus informal and things like paid versus unpaid. Can mm-hmm. you tell us about some of those distinctions? So I think uh, formal and paid are often used kind of equivalently. Uh, similarly, informal and unpaid are usually relatively equivalent, although not exclusively so. So a, a formal tends to be a paid caregiver, such as like an aide or a nurse or a volunteer. Um, is even if the volunteer is unpaid, it's someone that didn't have a pre-existing relationship with this individual. And then in contrast, we tend to think of informal or unpaid more as those family and friends who are already part of this person's life um, and now are stepping into a care role. Although again, I said it's not exclusive. Sometimes family members are paid by the individual dementia for the care that they provide. So um, some, I, I would say there's some controversy in the field about these terms because they, they, they don't apply to all uh, situations and sometimes are used as, as though they do. Um, but yeah, generally we would see this formal caregiver as someone without that pre-existing relationship, someone who's hired maybe to come into the home um, to help with um, monitoring or to help with uh, daily care tasks like bathing and dressing, some of the things that may be a little more difficult um, for caregivers as the dementia progresses, um, whereas informal, unpaid, generally that's referring to family and friend caregivers who already um, already knew uh, this individual. But as I said, sometimes these lines get a little bit fuzzy. Sometimes, uh, sometimes formal caregivers don't consider themselves as formal because over years of providing care for someone, they develop a close relationship with this person. So they view this person as a friend, um, even though they, they didn't know this person before they provided care. And then likewise, with in, informal, quote unquote, caregivers, sometimes they are um, like family and friends are paid um, and, you know, receive or are living with the individual, maybe rent free, some of these forms of compensation. So the lines get fuzzy, but generally the, that's what those terms are referring to. Quick question for perhaps both of you. I'm curious, like in the clinic, is this something that's really documented pretty quick, pretty early on in the chart in terms of who the, the point of contact is, the caregiver and things like that? Is this sort of tracked and used clinically when you manage cases like this? So generally, yes. Or, or I mean, I, I would hope it is. But but typically, um, typically for any adult, in particular an older adult, um, this can vary a little bit by state. But you sort of want like a 
hierarchy of decision makers. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, who's, who's sort of the next person we go to, um, hopefully that's um, specified and documented ahead of time. Sometimes there's actually legal paperwork that people have completed to make it sort of official. Um, if if that wasn't done and for some reason uh, the, the person is maybe acutely ill and in the hospital, then each state has its own kind of hierarchy of who you go, who you go to, who is their decision maker. Um, but, but generally... Um, you do try to document who, who's kind of involved in the decision-making you have like, you know, paperwork people need to fill out and give their permission that yes, please do talk about my care with this person. Um, that person can both give and receive information on my behalf. Um, generally, yes, I would say it's part of good clinical care to have this documented, uh, outlined in the chart. I think it's, yeah, I think it's part of good clinical care, but I do occasionally hear people complaining that it isn't in the, it isn't in the chart and it needs to be. So I think sometimes it is overlooked. Right. Or, or people, you know, it, it can be there, but if people don't actually look it up <laughs> or, or don't know where to find it, you know, that's sometimes the joy of electronic health record is the information mm-hmm. might be there, but if you don't know where to find it, or if it's not easy to find, uh, then, then it's as if it's not there. Amanda, in your discussions with caregivers, in terms of their kind of day-to-day roles and tasks, do you have a sense for what people tend to find to be kind of the most challenging part of the job? Definitely. I think there's a number of things. So I can tell you from some research that I've done in the past several years, I I ask exactly that. Like, tell me about a challenge that you've had recently. And I think everything that spans the gamut comes Mm. up um, in those interviews, right? So I I think like when you think about those domains that I talked about of like cognitive, cognitive, psychological and behavioral, functional, someone's going to mention something that falls in every single category (laughs) in each of those domains. But I think probably the most common thing that people will mention as being challenging are the behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, um, especially when these behaviors can be hard to understand for a caregiver, such as hallucinations or delusions that are kind of a different reality from which the caregiver is currently living in, or sometimes these behaviors can be harmful, like aggression, or even embarrassing um, when someone's with dementia's inhibition maybe is less and they're out in public and um, that can be very embarrassing for a caregiver. Um, If the individual with dementia might say things that are not socially uh, you know, uh, normal for someone to say. Uh, but I think like aggression, particularly agitation, um, these are maybe less common behavioral and psychological symptoms, but when when exhibited, these tend to be very stressful and very challenging um, for caregivers, very difficult. Um, other challenges, like I, I mentioned earlier, is this challenge of a loss of a relationship with someone, um, particularly when that relationship was always more equitable, maybe in a spousal partnership, or, um, as I said, like changing roles between, you know, a parent caring for a child and now the, the child is learning how to care for the parent. Um, so some of these relationship dynamic changes. And I think caregivers often really struggle with seeing the individual with dementia struggle with a declining autonomy. It's hard for them to see frustration on the part of the individual with dementia when they can't do tasks that maybe were very simple for them 
previously, I think that is very difficult for a caregiver because it is really clear evidence of that decline. And sometimes, especially earlier on, that decline can be very frustrating for individuals with dementia. Um, you know, they recognize like that they're they're struggling or having difficulty with some daily tasks. Um, and then, you know, even outside of these kind of symptom-based challenges, I think care coordination can sometimes be difficult. These family dynamics, like we've been talking about, um, can be very difficult. And we see more and more family caregivers who are also employed or uh, like in the case of adult children, they may be caring for their own children. And so I think we see increasingly more caregivers who are really juggling multiple roles in their life. And so they're trying to provide the best care they can for their relative with dementia while also maintaining other roles. So, I mean, if you even want to throw COVID-19 in the mix, I mean, think about this. We have some caregivers who are trying to at home virtual school their own children while also trying to care for a parent who has um, dementia and maybe doesn't understand, like, why do I need to wear a mask? Or what is this pandemic? And why can't I go, you know, shopping with you? Some of these changes um, were really difficult for people in this past year. Yeah, so I think that's like a perfect segue to the next question, which is what's caregiver burden? Mm -hmm. That's something, a a term that you'll see a lot in the literature. uh, what's it mean? And usually kind of what are the components? What falls under the umbrella of caregiver burden? Yeah, yeah, great question. So that that was a concept that kind of originated um, with my mentor, Steve Zaret, and some of his colleagues, um, Leonard Perlin and Carol Annis Hansel, goodness, back probably in the very early 90s. So it's been around for a while. And it's a way of assessing kind of a subjective appraisal of caregiver's emotional, physical, and and social stressors that they experience with the caregiving role. So for example, maybe feeling that your health has suffered because of the caregiving that you're providing or feeling strained um, or strain within one's relationship. So it's kind of the way that this caregiving role can kind of bleed into our life and in terms of how we appraise um, our stress and well-being. So um, you asked about the components. And so when we think about like our typical scale <laughs> that we use the burden um, scale to assess caregiver um, burden, it, it does have like several components. Um, for those of you who maybe have a statistical bent or background, you may be familiar with factor analysis, which can take you know a group of items and kind of um, align those items into uh, similarities in terms of how um, caregivers uh, are, well, in terms of how individuals are responding to, to them. So um, when we think about those components or kind of how this concept of burden breaks down, one, it would be called role strain. And that has to do with the caregiving role interfering with other roles like social roles or interference with personal responsibilities. For example, employment, you know, maybe um, you're needing to keep an eye on what Um, your relative with dementia is doing at home, but you're also at work and that can, you know, cause some difficulties for you with your work, or maybe it puts a strain on your social relationships because you have a harder time, you know, keeping up with those. That would be role strain. Personal strain would be more like the personal feeling of strain that caregivers can experience, whether it mean um, feeling more anger at times, you know, whether that be anger at the situation or even anger at the individual. Um, and personal strain um, that someone feels from kind of carrying this burden of of a care role. 
And then I think another component um, also has to do with worrying about your performance as a caregiver. So these are feelings that caregivers may hold about uncertainty regarding what they should be doing or even feeling as though they should be doing more than what they are. And so this is a type of burden in and of itself is you're, you're wanting to provide the best care um, for your relative with dementia. Um, and again, I'm saying relative, it's not always a relative. I, t- I, I tend to go there. Uh, but you're wanting to provide the best care for this individual with dementia. And sometimes you're worried about whether you are doing that or if you could be doing a better job. So these are kind of the components that tend to make up like a typical burden scale. Where do caregivers learn about caregiving? Yeah. So I would say it starts maybe, uh, maybe before diagnosis, but certainly at the, at the time of diagnosis, I think um, hopefully there's someone there with the, as Donovan said, there may be multiple people in the room in the, in, in the clinic. And so hopefully um, there's people there with um, the individual who's receiving that diagnosis. And ideally, um, you would be able to talk with a social worker at that time and, and get a sense of what are the resources. I think a challenge is people may not sense the need for those resources in that moment. They're kind of trying to process um, this new diagnosis that they've just received. Um, but hopefully in these clinical interactions, um, they can ask some questions, kind of get some ideas of, of what resources are out there. I think that's a great place to start, great place to start. But there are a ton of community resources generally, um, whether that be through senior centers, um, such as, you know, within um, Ann Arbor, at least we have like the Turner Center. Um, we also have, you know, Alzheimer's associations around the country. Um, and there's the Lewy Body Dementia Association. Different diagnoses tend to have different associations that offer a large variety of resources. And so some of these things may be formal programs like support groups. Um, that would be, you know, caregivers uh, of individuals with dementia getting together, often with a facilitator like a social worker, and talking through challenges that they're experiencing and kind of problem solving and brainstorming together as a group, kind of having some mutual peer support. Um, there are programs like adult day or respite care services. Um, so these are programs where an individual with dementia or you know other uh, older adults can go to the program. Um, there's social activities. There may be exercise. There may be snacks or meals. It's kind of like a you know a, a full program to engage um, these individuals and and give and also give the caregiver some respite or some some time off um, to relax or get their own. Um, needs taken care of. And then there's lots of training programs out there. Goodness, if you Google, certainly you're going to come up with a ton. Um, I, you know, obviously sitting within a university, some of these programs are going to be empirically, um, you know, sound programs that have have been researched, and there's probably many out there that are not. Um, And so this is where, you know, um, centers through universities or also you know, programs like Alzheimer's Association can really point caregivers towards programs that are evidence, uh, evidence-based. evidence um, So there may be training programs, for example, to help caregivers learn how to manage these behavioral and psychological symptoms, which they maybe just don't have a natural skill set to know how to handle um, something like agitation or a delusion or apathy, some of these challenges. So there's a lot out there. I think it can sometimes be challenging for caregivers to know where to look. Um, I hear all of the time from my caregivers and their research that I do that they feel like they get the diagnosis and they're told, um, we'll see you in a year or, you know, six months and they leave and, you know, this is rocked this family's world. 
and they don't know what are their next steps or what to look for. Um, and so, you know, I, I think on the medical system side, we need to be better about making sure we're equipping, you know, the patients and the caregivers with what they need um, and knowing what to expect, but also, um, you know, equipping them to know how to look and how to, how to find these programs. Certainly within Washtenaw County um, and the University of Michigan, we're very fortunate in terms of the number of resources that we have here as we have many university based centers like this one that's hosting our podcast, right? But we have a lot of different centers within the university specifically focused on dementia that offer a lot of resources for caregivers and not all communities in in the United States have that. Um, But most are going to have local senior centers. Um, Most regions have some sort of Alzheimer's association or the like. Um, And so they offer all sorts of programs for caregivers to um, to get involved with. But, you know, not all caregivers are ready right away. Some are. Um, and I think these different programs can have different benefit at different phases of the caregiving journey. I was sort of wondering that myself, like what the journey is like for the typical person going through this in terms of the, I don't know if, I don't know if you'd call it stages, but sort of the development as they come to grips with this and sort of adapt to the environment. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So early on, I mean, some of these individuals are still driving, still um, very independent in terms of their their functioning and leaving, uh, leading pretty you know n- normal lives. And then uh, over time, this um, progression takes course, and and things um, become more difficult or, or more challenging. And I think similarly with caregivers, it, it's a journey for them too. Um, and some caregivers jump right in; they want to learn as much as they can. They um, want to attend every single training program. They want to be like right there, <laughs> ready to know what to do. And other caregivers just aren't at that place. Um, and so uh, it takes a level of readiness, I think, to start exploring some of these programs. And I think we have to remember as researchers and as clinicians, that like, not all people have immediately that, that level of readiness. And each caregiver is different. There's a lot of variability. And so we need to understand that in, in our working with them and try and target and tailor our approach to kind of meet them where they are and help um, provide them with what's going to be most useful in, in the moment. What happens if a person with dementia, their needs exceed the capacity of their caregiver? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> this this can uh, be common, you know, over time. I think there's um, a wide variety of options or, or things that could happen. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, in terms of services, I think a great one that I always recommend to caregivers is adult day or respite care programs. There's been a ton of research into these types of services over the years, and they find that not only do they reduce um, stress and provide relief for caregivers and enable them to potentially maintain their care role longer, um, they also provide great stimulation for individuals with dementia when individuals with dementia come home from respite programs, research has found they sleep better. They have less behavioral and psychological symptoms when they get home from these programs. Um, and so this is like, you know, an initial type of program that can help maybe a caregiver maintain that role longer when things are exceeding um, their current capacity. Um, some caregivers will bring nurses or aides into the home to assist with some basic care task or to assist with supervision um, to help in ways that exceeds, you know, so if if you're thinking about like, say, an 85 year old wife of a husband with dementia, 
you know, sometimes being able to, to lift um, that gentleman up and to help him physically into the shower may be beyond her physical capacity. And so um, this is a way, you know, bringing nurses or aides into the home can help with some of these tasks. And then, of course, there are a variety of facilities, long-term care facilities, um, such as assisted living or nursing homes. And then there's specialized memory care units. And these are, um, you know, options for some individuals as well. And sometimes they're, they're really great options. Uh, every family is different in terms of their preferences and their values in terms of whether or not they are trying to prioritize home-based care or whether they're open to considering long-term care options. Um, I volunteered and, and worked in long-term care settings for a long time, and I think they can be great options for people, but it varies, it varies family um, to family. And of course, you know, there can be financial concerns with these programs too, because some of these um, do come with great expense. And I would say there's a lot of state by state variability and kind of funding structures for some of these services. So um, that can be that can be a challenge. And then, you know, I think sometimes caregivers maintain care longer than they likely should. Maybe care has exceeded their capacity, but they don't see other options and they're um, they're holding on to that role maybe longer than they should. And so, you know, one thing I often encourage friends, family who are um, in this caregiving role and context is, and I think this is honestly true for a lot of chronic conditions um, or other life situations, is we need to make specific offers of help. Um, I think that, you know, as friends and family of people going through challenging situations like this, it's easy to say, I'm here for you. Let me know what you need. But I think you need to be specific as friends and family and say, I would love to come and sit with your mom for four hours so that you can get out and enjoy lunch or go to the grocery store, you know, like make a specific request that someone can take you up on. Um, because yeah, it, this is a, often a lonely and isolating journey. And I think caregivers often struggle to reach out for help. And so I just encourage those of us who may be in a clinical supportive role or also friend and family role is to um, try and care for others in this way. And, and, Think of specific ways that you can help them out. That is a great point of advice. I mean, it's so easy in America to say, oh, let me give you a hand. But like to be specific like that, that takes it to another level of actually doing something to be helpful. Mm -hmm. I, I love it. Yeah, I, I was going to say the exact same thing. I, what I like is it, it sort of makes it turns the default into I'm going to do something to help you as opposed to the 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 default being you need to ask me for help. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the default is I'm going to do this for you unless you tell me otherwise. So right. uh, I, I, I really I, I love that. So in the last question here, we I feel like we we have spent a lot of time sort of talking about the burden and the challenge of caregiving. I was wondering if we could end on maybe a little bit more positive note and um, ask you for your reflections on more positive aspects of caregiving, what you've heard from caregivers, um, what um, what they've gotten out of the experience. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked this question because I think this has been a concern of many of us in the field for a long time is the focus in family care research has been so negative for so long that we are increasingly really trying to focus on the positive because there are many and some individuals really thrive in caregiving roles. I mean, it's kind of amazing to see that some people inhabit this role so naturally and so well, and it provides life meaning and purpose to individuals that was maybe missing previously. And so I, I think it's important to recognize all of the benefits that can come with caregiving. 
So one of them could be relationship closeness, you know, spending more time and in a different capacity with an individual with dementia, oftentimes caregivers report that they've really grown in their relationship um, with the individual for whom they're, they're assisting some learn new skills, right? So they've developed a whole new skill set. Maybe they've learned um, some new medical techniques. Maybe they've learned new ways of being adaptable in their own life or things that they can bring into other um, areas of their life through this caregiving role. As I said, it provides like great meaning and purpose for people. And I think generally caregivers will tell us a lot. They just really value knowing that their relative is well cared for. And oftentimes they say, I know that, you know, this individual really appreciates what I'm doing for them. So often they they feel great value in the care they're able to provide. They know um, or feel comfortable and confident that um, they, they're meeting uh, the desires of this individual or values of this individual. Oftentimes they say, you know, I know um, my mom or my wife wanted to be cared for at home and I'm able to do that for her. And I know that she's receiving good quality care. And so I think there's a lot of positives, a lot that can be gained from being in this role. Great. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. This was uh, just a really great conversation, and I think we learned a lot. Um, in our next episode, we're going to speak uh, with a caregiver that Amanda's worked with, Peggy Arden, about what it's like to provide care for her husband who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. So we hope you'll join us for that one. Thanks. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Other episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as directly from us at capra.med.umich.edu, where a full transcript of this episode is also available. On our website, you'll also find links to our seminar series and data products we've created for dementia research. Music and engineering for this podcast was provided by Dan Langa. More information available at www. DanLanga.com. Minding Memory is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network. Find more shows at uofmhealth.org slash podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from the National Institute on Aging at the National Institutes of Health, as well as the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the NIH, or the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back soon.